I'm a higher ed CMO, and I have a confession to make. Even after 18 years in higher education, I still don't know everything. I am so excited that there are still things to learn and grow from, and I really hope you enjoy this week's episode with our guest, Terry Flannery. Sessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at JamieHuntIMC, that's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C, for more opportunities to connect. Terry is a higher education leader with 35 years of experience working at large, medium, and small institutions, both public and private. One of the leading university marketing and communications professionals in the world, Terry has led some of the most successful marketing campaigns in all of higher education. She's also a consultant, speaker, and author of How to Market a University, Building Value in a Competitive Environment. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so pleased to be here with you for your first pod. I'm so excited to have you and, and so thrilled that you're my first guest. So Terry, I'm going to just jump right in. Can you tell me a little bit about your higher education marketing journey? Yes, it goes way, way back. <laughs> I've worked in <laughs> higher education my entire career, Jamie. So I started really even as a student is where I discovered I, I loved higher education and could have a career in it. I was an orientation advisor and that's the place that I learned the beginnings of student development theory and kind of the professional practice. So I started out in student affairs, earned my master's degree, did my time in resident life, and then was enticed to move to it where my professional mentor, who had been the orientation director, moved to admissions. And she said, why don't you just come try it? See if you like it. I think you might, but if you don't, you can always go back to student affairs. And sure enough, I loved it. It gave me a foot in academic affairs, a foot in student affairs. And there I realized pretty quickly that there was this growing area of opportunity in marketing where people who were taking marketing approaches were bringing them into admissions work, which is the only place that I'm aware of, maybe continuing education a little bit too, that marketing was being adopted in terms of practice. And so I spent my 11 years in admissions and then was offered the first marketing director position um, at my alma mater, University of Maryland, the same institution. And so I moved over to that role and started establishing the structure and the practice there and have been in marketing ever since. And I, I've been a CMO at three institutions at University of Maryland, at American University, and most recently for a year as interim at Stony Brook University in Long Island. So what did you like about marketing? When you made the switch from admission into marketing, what drove that desire for you to actually stick then with marketing? Yeah, I'm not sure I had the foresight to see 
all that I see now, but I knew a couple of things. One, that it provided great growth opportunities to have influence at a, a wider institutional level. And two, it combined three things. That it combined strategy, creativity, and analytics. And those three things don't often go together in a professional opportunity, but all three get me really jazzed. And to have something that combined those for us was very exciting. I always say that marketing is a blend of art and science. And it sort of feeds both sides of the brain. And I, I find yeah. that like what you're saying, I think, really connects with that, that you're able to still be very research and data driven while also getting to be creative and have a lot of fun with the work that you do. I agree. So you quite literally wrote the book on higher education <laughs> marketing. What made you decide to tackle that? Frankly, someone asked. <laughs> so I got a, a call from the editor of the Johns Hopkins University Press, the editorial director, Greg Britton. And he said that he had this series, which I knew about, for higher education leaders, small practical books. And he saw a real need for there to be a book about higher education marketing. He said that higher education leaders were hungry to know more about how to organize, resource, and measure the work. And he said he asked 10 people who should write the book, and they all gave him my name. That's, that's <laughs> a big I, vote of confidence. Well, I think he was trying to flatter me, but it worked. It, was, it made a big impression. And I realized when I had the opportunity to to do it, that it was really carrying responsibility for a whole profession and, you know, tremendous colleagues who I think the world of. And so I wanted to do it justice. So your book dives, does a deep dive into a lot of things that we face as higher ed CMOs, everything from dealing with boards, getting buy-in, measurement, data analytics. Were there any parts of the book that were particularly challenging to try to dive into, or was it all just a passion project for you? <laughs> I think it's fair to say it was a passion project throughout. There were a couple that were hard. The chapter that's on um, brand and branding is a beast. It's just big. And trying to articulate that process was in a, in a way that presidents and provosts and board members would understand was a big challenge for me. And then the chapter on digital marketing, I struggled because it's in order for leaders to be successful, CMOs and their leaders, they have to understand the language and the practice and the terms and even just how to read a, a report. There's lots of mystery there, I think, for uh, many. And so I wanted to be able to provide like a consumer's level of knowledge about its understanding so that people could, leaders could hold their CMOs accountable and CMOs had the language they need to learn and understand and better practice if they weren't um, facile in that area. So getting that balance right, you know, I tried to keep it up at a fairly high strategic level for leaders to hold their attention and interest, but go into enough detail that they had the language that they needed to be adept at knowing what to ask for, how to set expectations, how to gauge measurements, things like that. And then I guess just the other, the thing that happened kind of on the back end is that when the book was being reviewed, I got some feedback blind reviews, including from a CMO who later confessed who he was. <laughs> the reviews are blind, <laughs> so you don't know at the time. But I was very grateful for his feedback um, because he said, this really needs to be for CMOs, but you're talking to this other group of leaders. And how can you a way for the book to be accessed by both? And he actually made the suggestion to create some kind of conversation between 
CMOs and their leaders. So that's why the end of every chapter has a set of discussion questions. And actually, it's been really rewarding and fun to see and hear of leadership teams, the president, the chief advancement officer, the chief marketing officer, sometimes the enrollment VP are reading it together and using the discussion questions to kind of talk about where they are and what they might need to do next, which is awesome. I love that. So when you were tackling this book, you intended for it to be read by the different audiences, not just CMOs? That's right. It really was intended at first for presidents, provosts, and board members because they really want to know how this stuff works. And they have hunger and in some cases anxiety about even how to set it up, what kind of resources it will take, how to reasonably measure and hold accountable the people who are leading it, how to get the help they need. So it was equipping them first that was the first task. And then, you know, I realized through feedback that it was a tool for my immediate colleagues as well and that I could create this conversation. I found while reading it, I kept highlighting and underlining things almost <laughs> on every page because the book that. is all marked up. And it's like, there's things that you know that you've never articulated that are in the book. Mm -hmm. There's things that you've articulated that you kind of want to put a giant post-it note. There's things yeah. you want to print out and blow up and hang up on your wall. <laughs> what do you hope is the, the thing that people most take away from it? I hope that it is very empowering for our colleagues who are CMOs and inspiring. And I think that's some of what you're echoing, that you see reinforcements there of things you knew and needed to shout from the mountaintops <laughs> or take to your leaders and say, read this. So that empowerment is one really important piece. I think I want leaders and colleagues in our community to understand fundamentally that marketing strategy is institutional strategy. They are one and the same. They need to be very closely aligned, your marketing uh, plans, with your institution's strategic goals, and that, in fact, using this framework can help you to build revenue and reputation, which are at the root of many of the institutional goals in most of our strategic plans. So ha having that be a takeaway, a misunderstanding of marketing, that it's tactical, that it's mainly about promotion, you know, I try to blow that out of the water and get people to really see what the whole practice is and then the power that's in it if people do it well. Have you seen thoughts evolve around that in the time that you've been working as a CMO? Yes, absolutely. So I think in the book, I mentioned several presidents who've developed their market research at the same time that they're developing their strategic plan with the intent that it will inform both strategic plan and marketing plan. That's a level of sophistication and respect for the practice that didn't exist when I first started out. In fact, if you suggested that you would do market research to inform strategic plan, many leaders would have told you, you know, back in the early days, that's absurd, that's inappropriate, that we shouldn't be listening to our customers and their needs as a means to drive what the institution should do. And that would kind of get looped in with academic freedom and this notion that what is to be taught, what is offered is a role of the faculty and not to be um, tainted, for lack of a better word, by market research. And that's completely changed. So that's the biggest shift, I think. And then um, coming along, but um, still a lot of work to do, leaders are starting to realize that this is more than just promotion, that really 
This is a means to develop institutional strategy so that your stakeholders' experience with the institution, their brand experience, is wrapped up in everything, every interaction and every sense they have of your institution. So getting leaders to recognize the holistic practice of marketing is another piece that's coming along, still has a ways to go. Yeah, I'm surprised in my 17 years in higher education, I've seen an evolution and I've seen faculty be more move away from thinking of us as sort of the mustache twirling enemy that's trying to like <laughs> horn in on their area to yeah. strategic partners that can help them grow their programs, help them attract students into their individual classes. So I've definitely seen that shift in 17 years, and I'm sure you've seen that in your 35 years grow even beyond that. I think, well, what do you, why do you think that CMOs should have a seat at the leadership table and should be in these types of higher level discussions? Well, so it goes back to this notion of marketing strategy being institutional strategy. If you are at the leadership table, then you are in conversations about important institutional initiatives that are being considered, that are part of the marketing mix, really. So what's the product or service being offered? What is the price at which it's offered? What is the means by which it's the programs and services are accessed or distributed, and then you know what messages can effectively convey that mix to target audiences. So anything that you're considering around the leadership table and around strategy can benefit from the marketing expert at the table. And when leaders recognize that it's not just about asking us to take a decision that's been made and now figure out how to communicate it, but instead to think about the needs of our key audiences or stakeholders, to think about them as targets and to design the decision in a way that's going to effectively create what Kotler calls an exchange of value. That's his definition of marketing or part of it anyway, that you want to create a voluntary and satisfying exchange of value with your stakeholder audiences. And if they enter that exchange voluntarily and they give something of value and they receive something of value, and it's satisfying, that'll be repeated over time in a way that you develop a relationship um, over time. That's exactly what we want to do in higher education. It's a definition that's really consistent with our values in higher ed. And so when you think about it that way, it makes perfect sense that you would bring the expert with the knowledge of this practice and the data about your stakeholders, because we have one of the most enterprise-wide views of um, our audiences, into those conversations about strategy. And more leaders, a lot of them, are recognizing. I think the latest CMO study showed that something like 70% now report to the president or chancellor and 60% have a seat at the table very often through a, a, you know the title um, role, CMO or vice president. So that is clearly being recognized. Do you think there's things that CMOs and leaders in higher education should be looking to corp- the corporate Um, world for adopting and adapting how we market our institutions? Yeah, it's a hard leap. I mean, we don't often first look to the corporate sector for adaption of practice. Boards do, but (laughs) presidents and provosts often don't, and faculty think that's blasphemy still. So, you know, you have to do that carefully. But I do think there's some takeaways. So one of the things is how little we invest relative to the corporate sector in marketing technology or MarTech 
it's a really tiny piece of our overall operating budget and it's hamstringing our ability to do the things we need to do well, particularly bring that data to the table. You know, if you think about the really the ideal state, you would want to have technology stacks that allowed you to track someone from the point of first contact with the institution all the way through their lifelong relationship with the institution. So for example, as a prospective student all the way through their role as engaged and supportive alum. And so we don't have enterprise-wide technology at our institution in any of the stacks, and the stacks aren't integrated in a way that allows us to have a CMS, a CRM, um, marketing automation software, all of those pieces that you would want to go together. And they are expensive. I understand that. They are an investment. But I think the parallel is where institutions are now investing in ERP systems, and they understand how important that is for being able to uh, manage their human and financial resources and their student information system. The smart tech uh, investment is, I think, going to be the priority right behind this in order to do what we need to do to keep that lifeline, particularly for enrollment, but also for advancement uh, behaviors to be able to do that well. So I think that's a big um, adaptation from the corporate sector that we need to model. It's going to be pretty important. There are some others, but that's a big one, I think. That jumped out at me in the CMO study. And it yeah. made me pause for a second and say, am I advocating enough for MarTech? Am I standing up and stomping my feet enough? That's something that we need to be making an investment in. And I think it could be really transformative it for could, institutions you know, that adopt it. Yeah. I have had a chance to work with Salesforce in developing conversations in a roundtable. They have a roundtable of CMOs and another roundtable of CIOs, and I've been working with them to bring them together for a couple of conversations and really trying to recognize the power of that partnership because it's going to come from you know, a, an initiative that gets elevated to the top of the tech priority list is going to come from the endorsement of the CIO and CMO together, I think, along with some deans who care about their uh, grad school enrollments or the undergraduate admissions you know, the VP for enrollment that cares about that piece are going to figure out that this supports those outcomes. I think higher ed is so siloed and that's part of the challenge is everybody has their own instance of whatever CRM that they're using and things aren't connected to each other. And this is my territory and that's your territory. And I always talk about how we have to start breaking down these silos and building relationships across the institution and if you're not connected with your CIO, how are you going to further that conversation around MarTech? Yeah. I do think that people, leaders who have distributed resources, whether they're technology or human resources that relate to the marketing enterprise, they have to see what's in it for them to collaborate and work together because they're going to feel like they're giving some things up, right? That's always been the case with distributed and decentralized resources. And if they can see, one, the savings of doing something in a collective and the redundancy. And one of the things that's really hard about CRMs is keeping trained people to operate the systems. So at a former institution, we had three different kinds of CRMs and the people who were operating them each were kind of their own experts. And when someone would leave or be on vacation, there was no redundancy. When we built a more integrated system university-wide, we could create a staff of CRM experts who were power users in each of the units, but also had some floaters 
so that if you had openings or people would get stolen because they're so valued right now as employees, you'd have um, the ability to kind of cover those responsibilities right away. So seeing what's in it to collaborate and be part of a greater whole is a big part of the case for getting people to do more enterprise-wide technology. I'm going to confess to being a poacher and for stealing somebody else's um, CRM expert. <laughs> I mean, I, for me, it was recognizing that if we wanted to get that kind of talent on our campus, we needed to have the ability to offer it fully remote and yeah. to be able to poach anybody from anywhere in the country. And I'll tell the listeners right now, although maybe I shouldn't because it's going to spoil my advantage, but we had a lot of qualified applicants. And I think that being able to attract somebody to rural Southwest Ohio, we probably would not have had as many qualified applicants applying for that than if we offered it remote. We have to really Um, be thinking outside the box. Yeah. I'm with you philosophically, totally. I think there are some structural and cultural obstacles to that that institutions are struggling with. And the structural have to do with being able to arrange payroll and workers comp and all that kind of HR business in other states, how many other states or other countries, and having a resource to cover that. And many institutions, particularly the publics, are not equipped to move in that direction, and they're figuring that out right now. And then the cultural piece is just, you know, if you're a campus that's providing a premium in-person experience for your students who are more hungry than ever to be back and in person for many of the things they're looking for in a college experience, then how do you deliver that when your team are remote? And obviously some of what we do, I would argue the technology in uh, marketing can be done very easily remotely, but there are some things that our teams need to do that are more in person to deliver that experience. And I think we got to figure that out. 100%. We have chosen to have our positions that are technology adjacent be the ones that we're offering fully remote and it took a lot of effort with HR to identify states that we could venture into Mm -hmm. and there's some states Mm -hmm. that we just we're not going to be able to recruit people from those states but I think the big challenge that I have as a leader is how do we keep our remote hires engaged and feeling part of the culture of our office. As much as they would love to be virtual fully virtual that's a line that I'm I'm holding Um, steady to at the moment that they need to be in the office at least some of the time and that there needs to be days where everybody's in the office yeah um, to be able to do that so shifting topics just a little bit but I want to circle back to your book so I know you're working on a master class around your book can you tell me a little bit more about that yes this is very exciting so I have partnered with Enrollify which is a company that is very focused on the professional development of enrollment marketers. And through them, we have together approached five other higher education marketing agencies who have sponsored, jointly sponsored this course. So it's designed to be an asynchronous experience that you can subscribe to. It's got 10 sessions or modules that are each based on chapters of the book. And what it's designed to do is go more deeply into the substance of the book with some real application resources. So there are exercises in there in the materials for the course to help you take, you know, what we talk about in terms of development of a value proposition or a sense of the maturity of your marketing t- team and its role at the institution and applying that at your own institution in some more deep, uh, thoughtful, applied ways. And then 
tries to kind of queue up. And so what are you going to do about that next? So I think it will make the substance of the book, which is already pretty practical, even more applied for practitioners. And I expect the key audience will be people who are marketing um, professionals in higher education. What's I think fun about, you know, it's designed to be a master course. So I'm the expert leading the, the delivery of the substance and the engagement with it. But I've invited a bunch of my friends. <laughs> so colleagues in my network, some of my book whispers who help me be, you know, think about the substance of the book. And they are the guest experts in the course. And we also invited some of the founding fathers, and they are fathers, <laughs> of higher education marketing to also kind of give a sense. And so it really gives us an opportunity to uh, hear from a wide range of folks so that you're not just hearing from me. So between the offerings that I provide and the guest experts, I, I think you're going to get this really rich applied experience. I can tell you that we've designed it so that you can access it as an individual. So you can subscribe to it, subscribe to it for $59, or you can subscribe as, uh, so you can subscribe for uh, around $600 to for your institution to have access and then everybody gets a code to access the, the work. There's a version of the subscription that you can get the book and the course together if you don't have the book. And uh, I'm glad to say that for your listeners, Jamie, we've arranged a discount code so that if you want to register on the site, which maybe we can include the, in the show notes as well, um, you go to enrollify.org forward slash master course to register and you can enter the code CMOPOD and that will allow you to get a 10% discount on the registration for the course. So it will be announced by the time your podcast drops and the course will launch with the first sessions going live at the end of April. That is so exciting. I am so thrilled. The price point is exceptional. I think that leaves this an opportunity for the smaller schools that don't have a ton yeah. of resources, which is exciting. I'm going to be signing up 60 people. So um, wow. that'll... I know we're, <laughs> I have a big team, but we're really excited. I kind of shared them uh, with them a teaser about this and everybody's really excited. I think it's going to be a good culture builder too, because we'll be able to have so. some discussions and I'm really excited about this and think this is, a, is fantastic. And it gives people a different way to enter in with the content and like not everybody can absorb content reading it. So there's another opportunity to engage. So I love this. And thank Great. you for the, the discount for my listeners. We're, You're welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they'll appreciate that. So, so jumping to a different topic, what do you think, I would love to get your thoughts on centralized versus decentralized models in higher ed. Where to start? <laughs> I mean, we've been decentralized as long as we've been higher ed, right? This is how our institutions were founded and grew through the disciplines and the academic departments. And I don't think that is going to change anytime soon. But, and it's a big but, there are places where more coordination, collaboration leading to centralization has happened and makes sense. And I think this is, is one of those places. So I'm aware of institutions that have kind of pulled the whole of wax together. And I think it requires incredible leadership and incredible political capital on the part of the president in order to do it. And that may not be realistic. So I wouldn't say that's the end goal to aim for, certainly not right away. But you can start to think about structures and tools to be working in a more coordinating fashion, eventually more collaborative, not just coordinating and then conceivably could begin to make the case that it makes sense to have 
you know, more integrated structure. And there are lots of kind of steps along the way in that process. And in the book, we talk about, you know, things that are coordinating, things that are more collaborative, and then structures that start to integrate. Like you could have a team like yours that maybe follows a bit of an agency model where you have people who are marketing strategists who are specialists who are dedicated to a part of the institution as their portfolio. And we use that uh, model at uh, American University where I was vice president. You know, so you have people who deeply understand the goals and the priorities in the areas that marketing tools should be applied and you embed them in those places. So that's not exactly a centralized structure, but it's starting to follow a model that maybe is more like what you would see in fundraising, where you have someone who moves between the two areas, the distributed and the central unit, and starts to bring things together. And I think eventually it's possible, particularly the with the marketing technology facilitating that to become much more centralized. But I think we're in early days on that in most places. Yeah, when I was looking into that, because we're moving towards a centralized model here at Miami, and when I was looking into that, there were a few colleagues to talk to who'd actually gone yeah. through that whole process. And there is sort of that centralized versus center-led approach to it too. So even within campuses that I think would consider themselves to be more centralized, some of them are probably more better described as being center-led, where there's a lot of leadership and input and effort on alignment, but there's not necessarily the reporting structure there. And I think that can still be very effective. Yeah, it's it's certainly a place to take a step in the direction of the outcomes you're looking for that a central organization would give you. So what are your thoughts on the trends that are ahead for higher education CMOs? What should we have on our radar? What should we be thinking about? Well, uh, we've mentioned one already, which is the marketing technology piece. We spend far more on labor in our marketing organizations in higher ed and very little in marketing technology. And those two things are related. (laughs) And there are some things that we could do with technology that would not require as many staff or staff that could be allocated to other things. So I think that's something that has is bound to become more invested in and with greater integration. I just think it has to happen. And the, you know, the forces of change that are requiring something to be done there are all in, in line with the enrollment challenges that we're facing, the demographic cliff and the competition that's going to come with that being big ones. So I think that's one. Another is that I think we will start to see more mature measures of brand health and even a measure of brand equity in our higher education practice. And that's not a huge leap. There are some institutions and some agencies that are starting to really embed measures of brand health in their brand work, which is terrific, so that you're taking that pulse more regularly and can track it and identify progress in areas you know, with certain audiences, maybe to put more investment or to focus your the brand equity piece would be really great to get to because if we could create an estimate of the value of the institution's brand in a way that's respected as there are other forms of equity on our balance sheet, that would convey a huge message about the importance of our work. So I think that's probably coming. But I think along with that, there'll be greater accountability. So the more institutions invest, the more leaders are going to expect us rigorously measure and report on our progress and the outcomes and to recommend refinements where things aren't working. So I think we need to be prepared for that. So there's three trends. 
Do you think we'll move toward more outsourcing of these sorts of things? Or do you think that we're going to be needing to focus on hiring the right people who have these skill sets? Yeah, I think one of the things we're going to cover in the course is how to decide what to build capacity internally for. I just dangled my preposition, didn't I? For what we should build internal capacity and what should we outsource. And I think in making that decision, it would make sense to think about what are things that are aligned with the institution's core capabilities and capacities. An example, if you need some kind of sales force or team working with the CRM to really maximize the development of a relationship with prospects or donors or whatever, one of the things you need is like a call center and a staff to follow up on leads and convert them all the way along the way. We already do that in advancement with annual fund quite effectively. And in some admissions offices, we do that related to prospect development. So that might be something that's aligned with something we already know how to do and sustain. And if you've got that on your campus, maybe it makes sense to build that capacity for a digital marketing program in-house. On the other hand, there are things that aren't part of our what we're comfortable doing in higher ed or what we're, we're good at. And there are things that present such challenges for talent management, for retention of employees, that maybe for keeping up with certification or skills in the areas, that maybe just makes sense for that headache to be measured by our agency friends <laughs> because they can, you know, and they have yeah. the capacity to do so. So things, I think about things like SEO, SEM, some aspects of digital marketing that it makes sense for agencies to supply us um, with that resource. You could also make the argument for programs that have the capacity scale that it makes sense. You could outsource the whole kind of recruitment lead from lead gen all the way through that piece of the sales force to an outside firm, but only if the program has the scale to pay for it because it's expensive and it doesn't make sense to do that for small programs. So that's kind of how I make judgments about what should we build in-house, even if it's a new, relatively evolving piece and what to outsource. One thing I think we really ought to build internally that we haven't had is uh, business intelligence, having a data analyst at the disposal of the CMO to help with all of our questions in that regard. I think that would be huge. I feel so lucky to have one on my team. He, his office used to be right outside of my office, but now we've let him go fully remote. But it is a huge, tremendous advantage to have that. I think that the trick is getting the team to think about involving him from the very beginning on projects yeah. so that we're determining how and what we're going to measure and not having that be sort of slapped on at the end. Oh, Todd, can you tell us, how did this do? Like, no, yeah. we need to know up front what we're going to be wanting to measure that investment in data and to create that position for him and move that forward. So what do you think that we should be thinking about and excited about? And what do you think we need to be worried about ahead? I know the demographic cliff is it's probably one thing, but what are some <laughs> marketing specific things that we need to have in mind? Yeah. You know, I know the demographic cliff is scary and it's scarier in some parts of the country than others. And we'll see how it manifests. But I'm really excited about it because <laughs> that, that is the thing that's giving us this incredible opportunity to step in marketing as a strategic function that requires a level of investment and respect that we've never had before. So I don't think there's a better time to be a marketing uh, professional in higher ed. There's never been a better time. So I, I'm really excited about that. I do think I've seen in, again, the CMO study that you talked about that Simpson Scarborough just did, and this is their fourth iteration of that survey. 
they're seeing institutions start to cut their marketing budgets in lots of places as their enrollment has crunched and they feel strongly in many cases that if other areas are being cut, they can't help but cut in this area too. It would be unfair or the optics wouldn't be great. I think we have to really guard against this. This goes back to framing investments in marketing as investments that will build value, both revenue and reputation that have measurable effects on your institutional goals and that are, are going to provide returns that you need as an institution more than ever. So I think we need to guard against that instinct to cut and be prepared to make an argument. And I've seen several CMOs go into the arena to the chief of staff and to the provost if they're responsible for the budget and say, let's look at this way. This is the investment up front. This is what it should return. Here's how we'll measure. And investments have been maintained and in some cases increased. So I think that's something to be watching out for. And then I think the last piece is just the threats to our teams. We've talked a little bit about remote work and the great resignation. This is not just limited to marketing. All of higher education is facing this huge shift where more than half of our employees are saying they might leave the sector entirely. And I think that is a combination of a couple of things. One, we've always said, you know, come work in higher education. The pay's not great, but it's the work that matters. It's the mission that matters. You're transforming lives. You're advancing society. Those are all important things. And that has worked for a long time, but no more. And people think their jobs are out of whack. They don't have enough work-life balance. They're not getting paid enough. They're not appreciated enough. They're not respected enough. And they uh, don't have to come into in-person work every day in lots of other places with options now. So that is potentially a real crisis. And if we want to advance at this time, that's such an opportune time to demonstrate what we do, we're going to have to figure out how to build our teams in this time of transition. Do you think that salaries have perhaps not kept pace with how positions have evolved. And I think about the old publications offices where maybe you had somebody who just, you know, wrote a couple press releases a week and, you know, hung out at the water cooler with, with the faculty for a big chunk of the day and maybe faxed a press release over to somebody um, once a week or something to now having to have this great deal of savvy and understanding of data and how to analyze results and all of that. Do you think that's part of the issue that we have with losing really talented people? Maybe. I mean, I don't, for a long time, I've believed that you don't come to higher education to put your feet up and eat bonbons. It's not an easy job. People who came from other sectors might think, oh, we only work nine months of the year because, you know, we're off for the summer. No, that's not true. We work our butts off, right? And we have for a long time, including in areas like strategic communications where it's just been one issue or crisis to manage after another. Those are hard jobs. I'm not sure. I mean, it's. I'm sure we could make the argument that the jobs have not have evolved in ways that the compensation has not kept up and that there are both tools and savvy that are required to do the jobs more professionally than maybe they had been done decades ago. But I don't think higher ed has kept up by and large. Much of our labor force has been compensated at a level that is not equivalent in other areas, except at the top level roles. If you get to, you know, a leadership position, they're really great jobs with great compensation. You still work really hard, but those entry level and mid-level roles are not keeping up and we're going to have to figure that out. And I wonder if that's where the MarTech comes in, if that's where mm-hmm. instead of hiring more people 
who make less. We hire people who can really maximize the MarTech and pay them a little bit more and yep. have fewer people resources invested. You know, there's the applications for AI and marketing automation software are going to make some of what's done by people now more effectively done with those tools. And so having experts who know how to manage those tools who get paid at a certain level probably will shift the resources in that direction. So when you think about being a CMO and where you're going and career paths and what can you do after you become a CMO, what do you think are the potential career paths for CMOs? And is CMO the top rung or are there other opportunities within an institution of higher education that a CMO can aspire to? Yeah. Well, I'm an optimist if you haven't figured that out already. <laughs> so I think that even if your title CMO stays the same and you are effective, you end up getting handed other roles and responsibilities that give you wide influence at the institution. And so I think about someone like Angela Pollack, who was the research assistant for my book, who's the vice president of LaSalle. And her president and provost asked her to be the co-chair of their pandemic planning and response team. And one of the reasons that they articulated was that they couldn't think of anybody who could deal with the level of complexity and had the kind of relationships across the campus that she had. You know, you could say, wow, lucky Angela. <laughs> now, what I mean is there are opportunities to lead that go outside the scope of the marketing sphere. I had the opportunity to be to the, one of the design leads along with one of our deans at American University to reimagine the student experience and to design what that roadmap would look like. Those are very fulfilling opportunities that are outside the bounds of the CMO um, role. I think you could make the case that it's possible that we'll see more CXO roles, chief experience officers, and there's nobody better positioned to do that than CMOs. So it's another C-suite position that provides another opportunity. I've seen CMOs that ascend to in an advancement model from being the lead marketing person to the lead for all of advancement. So somebody like Binti Harvey at Scripps now leads the entire advancement function, which includes marketing communications, alumni, and development or fundraising efforts. So that's another opportunity. The thing I really think needs to happen, and I know you know this in hearing from me in the past, I believe that CMOs would make great institutional. And when I look at the uh, prospectus for many positions and you look at what the president needs to do and have experience in, they are many of the things that we are already know how to do. Not all of them. And so I think in order to be seen as more than a non-traditional candidate, even if you, like me, you've worked in higher ed your whole life, you have to be able to develop some experience for financial management at a pretty large scale, develop some fundraising experience. So those are areas where you should ask for some more responsibility so that you build your portfolio and could be seriously considered for those roles. And a couple of people have done it, but I'd like to see more. And I think very helpful for the sector to see more people ascend from that role to the presidency. I would really like to get one of those presidents on the podcast and talk about how they've evolved their thinking. I do know a lot of CMOs who are chiefs of staff too. We're sort of, yep. we have to be in all of those super secret meetings where you're finding out about right. things that could upturn your institution. And, and you also have to be the kind of person that bridges relationships and brings right. people to the table. And those I think are great skills for a chief of staff in an institution. 
So I know you have some exciting news about your career. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'm very excited that I've just accepted an appointment to be the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for CASE, which is one of the largest global education associations in the world, and really the lead for developing uh, a professional home for advancement um, colleagues all over the world. And so in an integrated advancement model, which CASE embodies, they provide professional development opportunities for people in marketing communications, alumni relations, and fundraising. And I'm going to be working with the executive leadership team, supervising four of the areas that represent kind of the key areas of revenue development and growth. We've just completely uh, upended our business model and recalibrated it in some really interesting ways to redefine how we do our work in the field. And some components of that will allow us, we believe, to uh, double our revenue in the next five years. So very to really think uh, about what we've learned from virtual experiences to develop professional opportunities, professional development opportunities that make sense to do so digitally. Um, delivered. There's a really exciting career journey framework that's part of the strategic plan where we've thought about the skills and the capacities for people at every stage of their development. And now we are aligning the educational programs to go along with that. So you could be a CMO who's building your team and they want to think about, you know, how they can continue to grow professionally and develop opportunities. You'll be able to look at this career journey framework for marketing professionals and say, oh, you've got this and this. Maybe you ought to think about this program as a next step. And if you're a case member, they can um, register for the program or the conference. So it's going to be, I think, a really exciting time. It it represents for me a through line in my um, interests of late to really help the field mature and to think about the development of my colleagues and their influence at institutions at a very broad level in an organization that's got 97,000 professionals all around the globe in 80 countries at more than 3,100 institutions. So I'm looking forward to taking my uh, leadership abilities to a new level of influence in an area that I care deeply about. So I'm very excited. This is really exciting. I mean, you're going to be able to have such an influence on the careers of so many people beyond, like you said, 97,000 people. I mean, that's, that is tremendous. And when I think about the that through line piece where you're talking about taking people through all levels of their career to have an opportunity through case to grow and learn and develop. That's, that is just really exciting sounding work. I am congratulations. I think as a a person who's been a member of case for 17 years, that is really exciting to see case evolve and hopefully thrive over the next, you know, several years and and continue to evolve. Thanks. So July 1st, I'll be July 1st. Yes. So this is this your first role outside of higher ed? I mean, I know well, it's higher ed adjacent, but... At, well, I would still consider it very much in the sector. So it does include advancement professionals at the secondary schools, independent sec- secondary schools, but the, a very large part of the membership and audience, two-thirds of it, are higher education institutions. So I don't see myself as leave, leaving higher ed. I see myself at, as going to a leadership role in the profession that's going to give me greater influence to develop it. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So thank you so much for your time today, Terry. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where people can find your book and find you online? 
Sure. So the book is easily available if you search How to Market a University. It'll come right up. It's available at Amazon. It's also available at the Johns Hopkins University Press. You can just use the URL press.jhu.edu. The course, I think we've mentioned before, is at enrollify.org forward slash master course. And find me on LinkedIn and at Twitter, where my handle is at I love your handle. Well, thank you so much, Terry. And thank you so much for listening. I hope to hear from you on Twitter. My DMs are open and I look forward to connecting. I really value making connections with professionals in higher education. And I'm always looking to talk and I'm always willing to do a virtual coffee. 